0: Welcome to Kids Considered, a podcast from UC Davis Children's Hospital, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist.
1: And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg.
0: Hi, my name is Jenny, and I'm an 18-year-old. I recently went to the emergency room for a really bad abdominal pain, and I thought it was appendicitis. But the doctors ran some tests and didn't think it was. What are the signs of appendicitis that I should be worried about? Ugh, what a great question. I mean, so common. You know, I mean, parents, of course, worried about this all the time. Um, and, of course, it brings me back to a story that I have to share. You guys know I always overshare my personal life on here. <laughs> but when I first started dating my husband, which was 10 years ago, We were out on a date and I was pre-med, so I hadn't gone to med school yet. And he knows nothing about medicine. He's not in medicine. And he told me that he had appendicitis as a teenager. And he said that when they were operating, something went wrong or there was some complication and they took out his spleen with his Mm. appendix. And I was like, wow, they must have really messed up because they're like on opposite sides of the abdominal cavity and then (laughs) like as i got to know his family and his mom she's like i have no idea where he got that like there was like maybe a small bleed that they had to cauterize or something (laughs) but he still has a spleen he doesn't like take any medication obviously for like someone that doesn't have a spleen and and so i always bring that story up because like that is when people ask me if like, oh, is your husband in medicine? I tell them that story. I'm like, no, he thought that he had his spleen removed with his appendix. <laughs> <laughs> but he is one of the you know people very commonly that have their appendix removed for appendicitis. So I'm really happy that we are talking about this today and that we have Dr. Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon here at UC Davis, here to talk us through some of the most common presentations and kind of the the surgical treatment and non-surgical treatment of appendicitis. Thanks for being here.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back with you.
1: And we should just mention that Dr. Kohler has really a passion for minimally invasive surgeries, trauma, health communication, and he's even a podcaster. Um, He developed the SET podcast, a podcast exploring innovations in surgery from the University of Wisconsin. So you know Dr. Lena and I we can like suspect appendicitis but then the next yeah. thing we do is we call we call the surgeon and to <laughs> to deal with it.
0: Absolutely. So let's start by talking about how common appendicitis really is in the US population. It seems very common.
2: It seems really common, and it seems really, really common at you know 2 a.m. when we get three <laughs> appendicitis <laughs> consults all at the same time. But um, it is one of the most common, probably the most common, uh, emergency operation that we perform in uh, pediatric surgery. It, there's about an 8% lifetime risk of developing appendicitis, so you know almost 1 in 10 people will get it at some point. And the reason it seems to be mostly the province of pediatric surgeons is that it's most common in the second decade of life. It's very, very, very rare in little kids, though, certainly not unheard of, and then sort of tails off as, as people get older, though. Certainly, the adult surgeons know their way around an appendix, too. <laughs> yeah. As a per-
0: another personal aside, my grandma had hers taken out at 80-something, and the surgeon said that was the oldest case he'd ever done. It was over Christmas, so we all spent Christmas in the hospital after she had her appendix.
2: <laughs> it really, I, I, it seems to happen at, on nights, weekends, and holidays, for sure.
0: Yes.
1: So what is the appendix? I mean, why do we have an appendix? I mean, because if you can just take it out all the time, like, why even bother with it?
2: (laughs) I mean, that's a great question. And even though appendicitis is the single most common thing we see as surgeons, and really, as pediatric surgeons, it's one of the rare things we see enough that we can actually study it rigorously, we have no idea. Um, (laughs) And and seriously, like, if you're ever at a party with a pediatric surgeon, and um, you want to, like, check your phone, and, like, you know, not necessarily pay attention to what the person's saying. Just ask them their opinions about appendicitis, and you can just like step back for an hour while <laughs> they just talk, because uh, this is it's endlessly fascinating. We don't really know what the appendix is. It seems like it's probably to some degree a vestigial organ. You know, rabbits, for instance, have a really long appendix that we are pretty confident is involved in digesting uh, grasses. Um, it also probably has some sort of Uh, immune function, immune presentation function. But people have tried to figure out if it has a role, and the studies are completely contradictory. Um, For instance, there was recently a study that looked at uh, people who'd had their appendixes out, and it showed that they maybe had a slightly increased risk later in life of developing Parkinson's disease. And Almost simultaneously in another journal, there was uh, an article published that showed that people who had had their appendix out had a decreased risk of developing Parkinson's <laughs> disease. So it, it is, um, it's a great mystery, but I think you know it is an incredibly common operation for which we have never successfully demonstrated any sort of downstream effect of having it out. And so I think it's pretty safe to say uh, it doesn't do much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
0: what causes that appendicitis or that inflammation of the appendix? Like, one thing I've always heard of is like it's a little bit of poop getting stuck or something and causing inflammation behind the obstruction. Do we know what causes it?
2: I think it's probably safe to say that it's not caused by any one thing. The appendix is called the vermiform appendix, which means worm like appendix. The name says it all. It's a little worm like thing that hangs off, it's like an appendix off of the, uh, the cecum, which is the first part of the large intestine. And it basically just hangs there as a little blind-ending pouch. And it seems as though sort of one unifying thing about appendicitis is that you get infections there when bad bacteria get stuck there and are not sort of washed out in the normal course of stool moving through your intestines. It's sort of a little backwater. So if you get a certain type of bacteria in there, and it could be one of any number of different kinds of bacteria, they can overgrow within that little backwater and cause inflammation and infection. And so appendicitis just means inflammation of the appendix, and and it can be caused by a number of things. Um, But one classic thing that we do see is something called an appendicolith, which is a little stool ball that gets kind of stuck in there and actually turns into calcium over time. So you can actually see it on x-rays and on CT scans. And often that'll act as a little ball valve where things can get into the appendix but can't get out past this little ball. And um, we think that that can increase your risk of developing appendicitis.
1: So, what are the usual symptoms of appendicitis? I mean, we think of abdominal pain.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Abdominal pain is pretty standard. And the classic story is someone who starts feeling a little bit of pain around their belly button and just not feeling quite right. And then over time, that pain migrates down into the right lower quadrant, such that about halfway between your belly button and the side of your pelvis, there'll be a point where things are really, really, really tender. That's the classic presentation. That's probably true more often than it's not. Uh, Although, you know, there are many different causes of abdominal pain and many different ways that appendicitis can present. It can, you know, you always need to think about it and put it in the back of your head in any patient who's presenting with abdominal pain.
0: Right. So when you get consulted on a kid in the emergency room with abdominal pain, What are your like go-to physical exam maneuvers? So you mentioned that point that all of us learn about in medical school, McBurney's point right in between um, the belly button and the um, sort of the anterior superior iliac spine of the pelvis on the right. For me, like if a kid comes into my office with belly pain and has some tenderness, I like ask them to jump up and down for me and kind of make it fun and see if they can do that because... If they can do that, it's probably not a surgical emergency at that point. Um, but I'm just curious what, what additional tests you do.
2: Yeah, there are a number of um, dead white men who have named aspects of appendicitis and its physical <laughs> exam after themselves. Um, so McBurney's point is a classic, right? There's something called Robsing's sign. There's a variety of physical exam measures that became popularized, again, because this has been a very common problem for a very long time. There are a variety of things that you can do um, to sort of assess the severity of someone's abdominal pain, right? Like they don't want to jump up and down. Sometimes if you push on the left-hand side of the belly, they'll say it hurts on the right. The reality is a lot of those physical exam findings are a little bit of an artifact of history because now we really use imaging as our like, go-to to understand what's going on. Now, does every kid who has abdominal pain need to get imaging? Like, Probably not. And I think that's where the value of the physical exam comes in is because you do really want to see sort of a focal tenderness on that right lower quadrant is really going to sort of set you off to thinking like this is what appendicitis could be as opposed to sort of like diffuse cramping, right? The pain should be like worse when you push on it because it's inflammation and so it's going to hurt when you push on it as opposed to, you know, crampy pain that comes and goes or pain that doesn't hurt more when you push down.
1: So you've done the history, you've done the physical, you've pulled the trigger and said, okay, this meets criteria for I want to do further investigation for appendicitis. So what's What's next? Is it like a regular X-ray,
2: an ultrasound, a CT scan? What kind of imaging do you do next? So regular x-rays usually don't see the appendix. Occasionally you'll see a little appendicolith, but there's probably not a huge role uh, for regular x-rays if you're thinking that appendicitis is what you're working with. So often our first step if we're thinking about appendicitis is now ultrasound. And ultrasound is great because it doesn't involve any radiation. It can be done reasonably quickly and. If it sees the appendix and the appendix looks normal, then it's basically 100% conclusive that you don't have appendicitis.
0: If it sees the appendix is the uh, key phrase there, because a lot of times I feel not able to visualize the appendix. Not Maybe not a lot, but sometimes.
2: It's really variable. It's one of the benefits of having a children's hospital is that you have people who are used to doing... Ultrasounds for children with appendicitis. And there's really good evidence that shows that, you know, ultrasound is very operator dependent. And if you're good at it, you're better at it than other people. So, you know, the all comers about the visualization of the appendix is about 60%. Like 60% of kids who get an ultrasound for appendicitis, they'll see the appendix. But at places that are really good at it, that it gets closer to 90%. It's like 85,
0: 90%. Wow, that's amazing.
2: Yeah, we've gotten a lot better at it over time.
0: If you are, you know, in that smaller portion, since we are at a children's hospital, thankfully, that doesn't see it, will you usually get a CT scan?
2: Yeah, generally at that point, we get a CT scan. Um, And a CT scan is great because it doesn't have any operator dependence. It's like the same image reliably every time. And it is very good at seeing the appendix. Like it's, incredibly rare to not be able to see the appendix. And to some degree with ultrasound and very much with CT scan, like if you don't see the appendix, then you can be confident it's not appendicitis. So we will go to CT scan. It does involve a little bit of radiation exposure. That risk is fantastically low, but it's, you know, higher than no radiation exposure. So we we don't do it on all comers. But um, if we don't see it on ultrasound or we don't feel like we've got a good ultrasound exam and our suspicion is high, then CT would be the next step. It used to be, you know, that we would make this diagnosis by physical exam alone, and we would accept uh, about a 10% negative appendectomy rate. So when we're just sort of making the diagnosis on the basis of those physical exam findings, one in 10 kids was getting a normal appendix taken out. And we've decided that with imaging as good as it is these days, that subjecting kids to the risk of a negative appendectomy is probably higher than the risk of having a CT scan.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, in addition to the imaging, which we're going to get on on most kids that have a convincing story in physical exam, they may also get some blood work or more looking at their vitals or other things. What can kind of complete that picture for you that this might be appendicitis?
2: Yeah, so kids will get a variety of other assessments. Usually, we'll get a white blood cell count, and we would be expecting that to be elevated And if it isn't elevated, if it's normal, that sort of points us away from classic appendicitis and more towards other things that can cause pain in that right lower quadrant, like what's called mesenteric adenitis, like a GI bug, a viral infection, something like that. Sometimes we'll get other inflammatory markers, but usually it's the white blood cell count that's kind of the most important thing for us. That's pretty like the standard for boys. Um, Now in girls, it gets a little bit more complicated because... um, there are other things down there that sit next to the appendix, specifically the ovary, um, that can uh, be involved. And so uh, girls will always get a pregnancy test. Um, most kids will get a urinalysis, particularly girls, to make sure they don't have a urinary tract infection because that can also cause pain in the right lower quadrant. Um, and then uh, my go-to test, my favorite test, is the hamburger test, which is you say to the child, would you like a hamburger? And if they say no, um, that actually points you pretty strongly towards appendicitis too.
0: (laughs) That's a great one.
1: Yeah, because they're not feeling hungry or well at all. Yeah. What about the difference between a perforated and non-perforated appendicitis in terms of how patients are feeling, how they're presenting, and how you're going to treat those differently?
2: Yeah. So um, the big question within a Appendicitis that we're asking when we go in to take out the appendix is, does it have a hole in it or does it not? And it's coming out regardless. It's really just a question of what are we doing afterwards? So, in a patient who has a non perforated appendix, meaning there's no hole in the appendix, no way that the bacteria from inside the appendix have gotten out, at least in any sort of large volume, right? There's no poop in the abdomen. Those kids were often sending home from the recovery room. Like they don't even get admitted to the hospital. Whereas if there's a perforation, meaning that there is a hole and poop has gotten out of the appendix into the abdomen, then you're at an increased risk for developing what's called an abscess, which is like an infected fluid collection. And there's some things we do to try to reduce that risk. One, obviously, we'll try to like get all the contamination out of the abdomen that we can see, but these are microscopic things, so we probably don't get them all. So we we like to bring kids in and give them a longer course of antibiotics in the hope that that will reduce their risk of developing an abscess. Also, if you've had a perforation of your appendix, usually like that, that inflammation that was just your appendix is now kind of more widespread in your abdomen, which can make your intestines slow down. And so often kids with perforated appendicitis aren't able to eat and drink well for a few days, so they need to be in the hospital for IV fluids.
0: So another thing that seems like it's changed in recent years is sort of how we manage appendicitis is that not everyone gets a primarily surgical approach. So possibly in the past when you had that right lower quadrant pain, you saw that inflammation on imaging, you would go straight to the operating room. And I think that's still what a lot of families and parents expect is is going to happen. Um, but But more so now, it seems like there has been some literature and some studies that show that actually, just admitting for IV antibiotics and watching them can be done too. Can you talk a little bit about what these studies have showed and and what kind of led to this change?
2: So it used to be thought that appendicitis was a surgical emergency, that it was basically like a bomb waiting to go off, or as one of my mentors um, always described it, you know, we used to think of appendicitis as a balloon that was getting bigger and bigger and might pop. When in reality, it's probably more like the appendix is a banana and it's kind of rotting from the inside out. So people started questioning whether we needed to take, you know, a kid with appendicitis to the operating room at three in the morning. And they did some really good studies that showed that if you give antibiotics, your risk of a non-perforated appendix perforating goes up basically not at all. So for 24, at least 24 hours after getting antibiotics, you don't have an increased risk of perforation. So what that meant initially was, okay, we we stopped doing appendectomies in the middle of the night. They're not a surgical emergency. They're just something that we wanna to get to within 24 hours of the patient getting antibiotics. Um, and then people started noticing that some of those kids were kind of better by the time they were ready to take them to the operating room. So people started asking the question, could we just treat appendicitis with antibiotics alone, which makes a certain amount of sense because it's an infection and we know that antibiotics are effective at treating infections. I don't need to tell you that, Dean. But uh, the role of antibiotics has sort of risen to the fore now in appendicitis. And there have been big studies in both adults and uh, more recently, uh, I was part of a study in children looking to see what happens if you just do IV antibiotics and, and observation. Um, and in the study that that I did as part of the Midwest Pediatric Surgery Consortium, we looked at over a thousand patients. And basically, what we did was we described IV therapy alone to, and surgery to the parents and the patient, and asked them which one they would prefer. And of those thousand patients, about sixty-five percent chose surgery, so about thirty-five percent did not. And of that thirty-five percent, you know, the one in three patients that that chose to do antibiotics about 67% of those went on to have no problem with their appendix at a year which is far as far out as we've measured it and the big difference in terms of outcomes other than that was that um, patients who got antibiotics had about four fewer days of disability meaning just like not going to school parents not able to go to work it was like six days for the antibiotic only kids versus 10 days for kids who would had surgery but most of the other measures were were equivalent and in my experience the The patients and parents who elected to do antibiotics only, um, it was usually because there was something coming up where that like surgery was going to be a real problem. Like, you know, athletes (laughs) who've got a big game next week or it's, it's almost prom. Like these are the the times (laughs) where you start seeing like, uh, antibiotics only where it's like the slight risk of your appendicitis coming back, um, is kind of worth it because you've got like a major life event around the corner.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, great that it gave us some really good information and and data. And it seems like it is a really, you know, appropriate thing to try in the beginning um, if it's not complicated.
2: Yeah, it's a viable option for a certain subset of appendicitis. Like we we did pick pretty carefully like what groups we thought were least likely to have problems. So it's like, there can't be any evidence that it's perforated. There can't be an appendicolith, your white blood cell count can't be really high or really low. And you have to demonstrate, you know, improvement with antibiotics over 24 hours. And otherwise, you know we are strongly recommending surgery. But it's a great opportunity to do shared decision making with parents and patients, because, like, you know, I think it's a great model of taking into account other issues that may be going on in a patient's life where you know, is surgery absolutely necessary? No. Then let's talk about like what other options exist.
1: So for those children who have appendicitis or they're being evaluated for appendicitis, we often tell them that they can't eat. And in medical terms, people probably heard this on medical TV shows, like their NPO of course, I always have to look that up. What that means? It's Latin, <laughs> nil per os, nothing by <laughs> mouth. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I asked
0: It's actually not what I thought it meant. So that what, I learned what did you something think? New today? I don't know, like nothing per oral or nothing. That was what I would have oh. guessed.
1: Well, that's according to Wikipedia. So, <laughs> so, it's, uh, so you know, the kids, sometimes they, they want something, and sometimes they don't want to eat a lot, but just like their mouths are dry, and they just want like a sip of water or something, and that can be frustrating to them, and it can be frustrating for the parents also. So can you tell us why this is important for the children not to be eating anything, and if they do,
2: complications could ensue? Sure, yeah, this is a question that comes up a lot. And, you know, even for non-emergency operations, like if you're just having going into surgery to have your hernia repaired, like you're going to be told that there's a certain period of time before your operation when you shouldn't have anything to eat or drink. And I think we're increasingly recognizing that that can be really burdensome for patients and parents. And so we're trying to sort of we've now sort of separated eating from drinking and within drinking, there's some subcategories of like clear liquids versus not clear liquids. Um, and we're trying to sort of push it out so that you can at least have something to drink, you know, within a couple of hours of surgery. But the reason that we're worried about it and, and the reason we're maybe a little bit more worried about it in something like appendicitis where there's inflammation in the abdomen is that it is very, very dangerous to vomit when you can't protect your airway. Um, meaning like you can't sputter and cough and turn to the side. And that situation very well describes going under general anesthesia. So there's a period when you're going under general anesthesia where you're asleep, but they haven't put a breathing tube in yet to protect your airway. And if you were to vomit during that period and what's called aspirate, so breathe uh, the contents of your stomach down into your lungs, that's very acidic and can cause really bad problems. And so it's really an anesthesia-driven concern, which is very valid, that they want your stomach as empty as possible before uh, you go to sleep for anesthesia so that you minimize the risk that something comes up from your stomach and down into your lungs during that very short period when you're asleep um, but don't have a breathing tube in place.
0: You know, sometimes as physicians, we don't take the chance to just sit down and explain why these recommendations are the way they are to parents or people. And and so even just explaining that, you're like, OK, yeah, I really wouldn't want that to happen to my kids. That makes <laughs> right. a lot more sense than like these mean doctors are just trying to starve them, which is sometimes, you know, I think how they feel.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, we need to do a better job of it. And we also need to be thoughtful about, I think, you know, when I was a resident, basically every patient was just like NPO at midnight in case you decided to do something later the next day. And, um, and now we need to be, we need to be thoughtful about like, you know, when could something really happen? Are we really going to be doing something? And at least, you know, sort of allowing, you know, clear liquids where you can have, you know, two hours notice, um, and, and still be able to do a procedure. Um, whereas, you know, if, if they do want a hamburger, um, Well, a they probably don't have appendicitis, and and B, you know that's that's like an eight hour wait at that point.
0: Yeah, definitely. So let's say we've made the decision, you know, maybe they're perforated, maybe their white blood cell count is really really high, and they're going to the operating room. You are taking them back. What um, does this procedure look like for for most patients, or will it be different depending?
2: So I think it's pretty standard. Um, Certainly here at UC Davis, our approach I think is is quite standard. So the vast majority, if not 100% of appendectomies are are performed laparoscopically, meaning that we put a camera in at the belly button, we look down at the appendix, and then we add usually uh, one or two little helper incisions to put in little instruments. And then under the guiding of the camera, we're able to find the appendix, get it separated from other things, disconnect it from the intestine, and, and then bring it out, we usually bring it out through the, the belly button, so you're left with you know an incision the belly button uh, that's maybe, you know, like half an inch long, and then uh, two small incisions the abdominal wall. And I actually will often, particularly for appendicitis that isn't perforated, um, I'll do the whole operation through a single incision in the belly button. So we'll go right through the middle of the belly button, put in a camera, and then right next to it a little instrument, and then take the whole appendix out through what's called a single incision laparoscopic surgery, which leaves you. Effectively, with an invisible scar just hidden in the belly button and nothing else, it's pretty cool.
0: that is really cool. Does anybody ever want to keep their appendix like as a little <laughs> memento from the surgery?
2: Yeah, people have asked, and our our general response is no. Um, the simple reason is that we want the pathologists to look at it because um, there can be some things that uh, can cause appendicitis that you would want to know you had um, one is. Uh, inflammatory bowel disease. So sometimes the first time people are diagnosed with Crohn's disease is on the pathology from their appendix. And the other is something um, called a carcinoid tumor, which is a neuroendocrine tumor that you can find. Sometimes its first presentation is with appendicitis. And if you have that, oftentimes removing the appendix just takes care of it, but um, you would definitely want to know and, and kind of get followed if that were the case. It's also sometimes the first time we find lymphoma. So it's definitely important to send the appendix to the pathologist, though I will say like 99% of the time it's just appendicitis. So (laughs) if people have appendicitis, they shouldn't be worried that they also have a tumor, but it is something that we need to check for.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I'm glad that we addressed that. And now we know that you can't bring your appendix home in a little jar with you. Um so I know you talked about that non-perforated appendicitis. Um sometimes they can just go home right from the like the post-op area and that if it's perforated they may have to stay a few days. Is there like an average as to how long um they may expect to be admitted after surgery?
2: Non-perforated appendicitis we're now frequently sending home from the recovery room. Sometimes they'll spend the night, you know, if it's late or if they're just kind of feeling a little bit you know nauseated after surgery, and they just need a little more IV fluids. Um, but those kids don't get any more antibiotics, and as soon as they feel well, they go home. Um perforated kids, you know, they stick around, they they stay on IV antibiotics and they go home the same way, you know, we send any surgical kid home, right they They need to have their pain controlled on medications that they can take by mouth. They need to be able to eat and drink enough to sustain themselves, and they need to be able to move around. Um, So when they meet those criteria, uh, they go home. And in perforated appendicitis, I'd say sort of the average is somewhere between three and five days.
1: So for the uncomplicated, the non-perforated appendicitis, the straightforward case, what's the usual pain control after surgery?
2: I think this is an area where, you know, having a lot of appendicitis has really helped us to understand and use appendicitis as a laboratory for uh, opioid prescribing in pediatric surgery. And I think Certainly, when I started in practice, um, you know, the the norm was to send kids home with opioids. Uh, And I think we've discovered, as we have for many other operations, that patients don't need or want those medications. And so uh, our standard practice now is um, Tylenol and and ibuprofen after surgery and taking it easy.
0: Mm -hmm. Definitely laying on the couch watching that Netflix show. Popsicles. (laughs) Popsicles.
2: <laughs> yeah, screen time rules are out the window when you've had appendicitis for at least a few days.
0: <laughs> yeah, even I'm on board with that, which is saying something this, you know, I'm the big screen time one over here. Um, so thank you so much for walking us through appendicitis today. Let's summarize some of the main points from our discussion. Appendicitis or inflammation of the appendix is super common. About 8% of people will suffer from appendicitis in their lifetime.
1: Mm -hmm. And the most common age um, that this presents is in the second decade of life.
0: The most common symptoms are going to be that right lower quadrant pain. Sometimes it starts right around the belly button. It moves to the right lower quadrant. The kids usually may have some nausea. They may have some fever.
1: And good history and physical will point the direction to whether more workup is needed, such as imaging.
0: So starting with an ultrasound, if that's inconclusive, potentially getting a CT scan.
1: Mm -hmm. And then usually blood and urine tests are performed also just to make sure to provide more information.
0: And depending on what kind of appendicitis you have, you may be offered IV antibiotics. That will be the surgeon's decision. Um, Or you may go to the operating room. And most of these non-perforated appendicitis, they can just do laparoscopically, which means you'll have a small incision. They can remove the appendix and you may even get to go home later that day. If it is perforated, you may have to stay a few days with some additional IV antibiotics. But again, it's a mild recovery. Most people don't need opioid pain medications for routine non-perforated appendicitis. And you can just chill at home, watch some TV, take some Motrin and Tylenol and be getting better there.
1: And that reminds me of a joke. (laughs)
0: Let's hear it.
1: Okay, so did you hear about the man who calls his surgeon and he says, Doctor, I think my wife has appendicitis. It's an emergency. Uh, and the doctor says, that's impossible. I personally removed your wife's appendix. I have never seen somebody have appendicitis twice. And the man says, okay, what about a man getting divorced and remarried? Have you ever seen that?
0: <laughs> so is he just saying that his wife his wife is insisting um, that... It's a
1: different wife. Oh! Second wife Took me a second That's that's a good one That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered
0: You can find more information on our website kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu
1: Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered
0: and Instagram at Kids Considered
1: If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future we would love to hear from you
0: Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388.
1: Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com.
0: Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts.
1: Thank you for listening and we hope you will join us for our next podcast.
0: Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital.